So my wife and I just got back from a trip to Las Vegas, and it's not my first time in the desert, but it's always a little bit jarring when you're going from the lush, humid greenery of where we are now in Virginia to the dry, dusty, and seemingly barren desert. But the desert has a stark beauty to it, and being in the desert always gets me thinking about the things that live there, plants and animals that have adapted to thrive in the harsh conditions of the desert. Because far from being barren, the desert is full of life. So today, I want to take a closer look at the deserts of the United States and tell you about just a few of the things that live there. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. Deserts are generally defined by the amount of precipitation that falls in a year, 10 inches or less. So let's put that into perspective. Seattle and New York City each get around 50 inches per year. Chicago gets about 38, and Miami, 67 inches. Compare that to desert cities. Phoenix, Arizona gets just over 7 inches a year. Albuquerque gets just 9. And Las Vegas, a paltry 4. And almost as important as the amount of precipitation is the timing of it. Places like Seattle, Miami, Chicago, and New York all tend to get more precipitation in some months than in others, but they still usually get some significant amount each month. Even Chicago's driest months, January and February, still average two inches of precipitation. In contrast, Albuquerque gets about half of its nine-inch total in July, August, and September, and only scant amounts spread out through the rest of the year. Likewise, Las Vegas gets about half of its annual total, which again adds up to just two inches, in the winter, January, February, and March, and then, on average, gets nothing in May and June. The remaining two inches is spread evenly from July to December, which adds up to less than half an inch a month, and is usually in the form of a brief scattered shower. And of course, in addition to being dry, deserts, excluding the cold deserts of the Arctic, tend to be hot, particularly in the summer. Las Vegas summer temperatures frequently exceed 100 degrees Fahrenheit. In fact, on the day I wrote this episode, the high temperature in Vegas was forecast to be 106. Phoenix is considered to be the hottest city in the United States, with an average high temperature over 100 degrees from June through September. So now that we've defined what a desert is, let's look at the deserts of the United States and some of the species that live in them. The United States has four major deserts, the Great Basin, the Mojave, the Sonoran, and the Chihuahuan deserts, all located in the western U.S., although the Sonoran and the Chihuahuan deserts also include significant portions of Mexico. Collectively, these four deserts form the North American desert. At 250,000 square miles, the Chihuahuan is the largest of the four and the eighth largest desert in the world, although since 90% of it is in Mexico, it's not the largest in the United States. In the U.S., the Chihuahuan Desert includes southern New Mexico, eastern Arizona, and southwest Texas. It also includes the 1,900-mile Rio Grande on the border of the U.S. and Mexico. The river, along with many underground springs and small streams, provides water to this otherwise dry region. 
The Chihuahuan Desert is home to a surprising amount of biodiversity. In fact, it's considered to be the most diverse desert in the Western Hemisphere and one of the most diverse arid regions in the world. Unfortunately, the Chihuahuan Desert ecoregion is also one of the most endangered ecosystems in the world as a result of human activities. Overgrazing, water depletion and diversion, changes in the fire regime, urbanization, increases in agriculture and resource extraction activities, invasive species, and overcollecting of native plants are all major threats. Big Bend National Park in Texas protects 800,000 acres of this fragile landscape and its flora and fauna. The Chihuahuan Desert boasts as many as 3,500 different plant species, about 1,000 of which grow only in this ecoregion. This number also includes nearly 400 species of cactus, which is about 25% of the number of cactus species in the entire world. Cacti are well adapted to life in the desert, with many adaptations to conserve water. For example, almost all cacti are succulents, which means they have thickened, fleshy parts adapted for storing water. In most cacti, this fleshy part is the stem. Most species of cacti have lost true leaves, retaining only spines, which are, in fact, highly modified leaves. In addition to protecting itself from herbivores, spines help prevent water loss by reducing airflow close to the stem and providing some shade. In the absence of leaves, and in addition to storing water, the cacti's enlarged stems carry out the process of photosynthesis. Now, as soon as I mentioned cacti storing water, you probably remembered that old survival tip about cutting open a cactus to get water if you're dying of dehydration in the desert. In the movies, the parched cowboy cuts a hole in a cactus and dips out cool, fresh water to quench his thirst. I'm here to tell you, do not attempt to get water from a cactus. Contrary to what you've seen in old westerns, cacti are not, in fact, thorn-covered reservoirs of fresh water. Water is the most precious resource for all life in the desert, and cacti would not have survived long without a really good multi-tiered security system. What's inside a cactus is a noxious, jelly-like fluid that's generally toxic to human beings. In addition to their spines, most cactus species protect their spongy flesh with acids and potent alkaloids, which can cause kidney problems in humans, especially when your kidneys are already weakened by dehydration. The flesh of some cactus species can also cause vomiting and diarrhea, further exacerbating any dehydration, or temporary paralysis, none of which are conducive to your survival in an emergency situation. While there are two species of cactus that are edible, the prickly pear and the fishhook barrel cactus, both are said to be fairly unpleasant when eaten raw, but they have lower concentrations of harmful chemicals and could give you a bit of hydration in a pinch. Cactus fruits are a better bet, but many are also unpalatable if eaten raw. I came across this quote when doing my research. Quote, Plant experts say that the fishhook barrel cactus is the least problematic of the extensive cacti family when used as a water source in the desert, unquote. Not exactly a glowing endorsement. They go on to say that it should only be used in an extreme emergency, only in small amounts, and never on an empty stomach. 
As with any wild plant, unless you can identify it with 100% certainty, you should not attempt to eat it. You've been warned, and dispatches from the forest cannot be held responsible for the results if you decide to eat a cactus. Another common desert plant, especially in the Chihuahuan Desert, is the creosote bush. The creosote bush is really a fascinating plant. With any plant or animal in the desert, water conservation is the name of the game. All plants breathe by taking in carbon dioxide through microscopic openings in the underside of the leaves called stomata. But this process also results in the loss of water. Creosote bushes only breathe and photosynthesize in the morning when the temperature is lower and the relative humidity is higher. This helps limit their water loss. When the sun gets higher, the creosote bush closes the stomata and, well, holds its breath until the next morning. Because of this, the creosote bush always faces southeast. When a creosote bush reaches an age between 30 and 90 years old, the oldest branches will die and its crown will split into separate crowns. Eventually, when the old crown dies, the new one becomes what's called a clonal colony, meaning it's composed of many separate stem crowns that all originated from the same seed. What makes that so interesting is that these clonal colonies of creosote bushes can live an extraordinarily long time. One such plant, dubbed king clone, is one of the oldest living organisms on Earth, estimated to be around 11,700 years old. These bushes are also important because they create habitat for many other desert creatures. Creosote bushes drop some of their leaves heading into summer. This accumulation of fallen leaves, along with other wind-blown detrius that's caught up in the plant, creates an ecological community specific to the creosote bush that includes millipedes, beetles, pocket mice, and kangaroo rats. The largest desert completely in the United States, and the ninth largest desert in the world, is the Great Basin. The Great Basin is about 190,000 square miles and is technically considered a cold desert. Thanks to its altitude, between 3,000 and 9,800 feet above sea level, it receives much of its minimal precipitation in the form of snow. However, it's still hot in the summer. It's formed by the rain shadow effect of the Sierra Nevada and Cascade Mountains, and it lies mostly in Nevada, but crosses into parts of California, Idaho, Utah, and Oregon. The standout species in the Great Basin Desert is the bristlecone pine. These trees are not only well adapted to the harsh climate and poor soil, these trees need harsh conditions. They actually do poorly in less than harsh conditions, which makes them hard to cultivate. In gardens, they quickly succumb to root rot. But where most other plants can't even grow, like rocky soils and virtually no rainfall, they do very well, and for a very long time. The oldest bristlecone pine known is estimated to be over 4,800 years old, again, making it one of the oldest known individuals of any species. Now, I know I've talked a lot about plants, but it's not just plants in the desert. The Great Basin Desert is also home to many animals, including mountain lions, jackrabbits, pack rats, elk, ring-tailed cats, and sagebrush voles. Besides mammals, there's also many reptile species, including rattlesnakes and horned lizards, sometimes called horny toads, even though they're not related to toads. There's 21 species of horned lizards, and 15 of them are native to the United States. Horned lizards have flattened, rounded bodies and blunt snouts. 
They have spines on their back and sides, which are modified reptile scales. These prevent water loss through the skin, but the horns on the head are true horns. They have a bony core, just like a deer's antlers. Horned lizards use a variety of means to avoid getting eaten by other desert animals. First of all, their coloration is excellent camouflage. When threatened, their first defense is to remain still to avoid detection. If approached too closely, they'll often run in short bursts and stop abruptly to confuse the predator's visual acuity. If that fails, they puff up their bodies, which makes them appear more horned and larger and subsequently more difficult to swallow. To avoid being picked up by the head or neck, a horned lizard will either duck or elevate its head and orient its cranial horns straight up or back. If a predator tries to take it by the body, the lizard drives that side of the body down into the ground so the predator can't easily get its lower jaw underneath. At least eight species, including the widely distributed Texas horned lizard, are also able to squirt a targeted stream of blood from the corners of their eyes, up to about five feet. The scientific term for this is ocular autohemorrhaging. They do this by restricting the blood flow leaving the head, which increases blood pressure and actually ruptures tiny vessels around the eyelids. The blood not only confuses the predator, but it tastes bad, especially to canine and feline predators, possibly due to the lizard's large diet of venomous harvester ants, although this defense doesn't seem to work against predatory birds. Now, despite legal protection, horned lizards are declining throughout their range. The Texas horned lizard, for example, has disappeared from almost half of its geographic range. Population declines are attributed to a number of factors, including fragmentation and loss of habitat from real estate development, road construction, and conversion of land to agricultural uses. Horned lizards have very specific nutritional needs, which are met by their heavy diet of harvester ants. Invasive fire ants brought in from South America in potted plants displace native harvester ants, putting horned lizards at risk. In addition, collecting for the pet trade, planting of non-native grasses, pesticide use, and predation by domestic dogs and cats place continued pressure on horned lizards. The smallest of our deserts in the United States is the Mojave, at just over 31,000 square miles, which is still just slightly smaller than the state of South Carolina. The Mojave acts as a transition between the Great Basin Desert to the north and the Sonoran Desert to the south. It has the widest range of elevation, from the 11,049-foot summit of Telescope Peak in the Panamint Mountains to the lowest point in North America, the Badwater Basin in Death Valley, which sits about 282 feet below sea level. Death Valley is also the driest and hottest place on the continent, averaging just over two inches of rain a year and boasting average high temperatures in the summer of well over 110 degrees. The record high temperature ever recorded in Death Valley was a scorching 134 degrees Fahrenheit. Four major mountain ranges lie between Death Valley and the ocean, each one adding to an increasingly drier rain shadow effect. In 1929, 1953, and 1989, no rain was recorded for the entire year. Remember how I said that Chicago gets 37 inches of rain each year? Consider this. In Death Valley, the wettest period ever recorded was from mid-2004 to mid-2005, when a total of six 
Yeah, you heard that right. Six inches of rain fell, resulting in the formation of temporary lakes in the valley and incredible wildflower blooms. Joshua Tree National Park and the Mojave National Preserve help preserve this ecosystem for the wide range of species that live here. Now, when you think about deserts, fish are certainly the last animal that might come to mind. So surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, because after all, it is a desert, two of the rarest and most endangered inhabitants of the Mojave Desert are fish, the Death Valley pupfish and the Devil's Hole pupfish. These fish only grow to be about an inch long. Both species are considered endangered because they have an extremely limited home range. The Death Valley pupfish is found in only two small isolated locations in Death Valley, and the Devil's Hole pupfish is found in only one. The Death Valley pupfish can survive conditions that would kill other fish. For example, water that is four times more saline than the ocean, hot water up to 116 degrees Fahrenheit, and cold water down to 32 degrees Fahrenheit. The Devil's Hole pupfish lives in Devil's Hole, a geothermal pool that is 72 feet long, 11 and a half feet wide, and 430 feet deep, although the pupfish only lives in the top 80 feet near a shallowly submerged rock shelf that provides critical feeding and spawning habitat. The water in Devil's Hole maintains a constant temperature of 91 degrees and is low in dissolved oxygen. Now, pupfish pretty much consume any available source of food, including beetles, snails, algae, and freshwater crustaceans, with a diet that varies throughout the year. Reproduction occurs year-round, although there's spikes in the spring and fall. Now, in addition to having a limited home range, one of the many challenges to conserving these fish is that females don't lay very many eggs, and the survivorship from egg to adult is very low. Eggs and baby fish are preyed on by predaceous diving beetles. And even in ideal conditions, the lifespan of the pupfish is only 10 to 14 months. Now, since they live in such a limited area, pupfish are extremely susceptible to disturbance, both from natural events like flash floods or earthquakes, and, of course, from human activity. In the 1970s, Devil's Hole pupfish were threatened by the depletion of groundwater, the withdrawal of groundwater lowered the water level in Devil's Hole and limited their ability to spawn on the shallow shelf. After the groundwater withdrawal was limited, pupfish populations rebounded, but it's been on the decline again since about 1995, and the reasons for their decline are currently unclear. Okay, finally, we have the Sonoran Desert. The Sonoran Desert covers about 121,000 square miles across southwestern Arizona, southeastern California, and portions of the Mexican states of Baja California Sur, Baja California, and Sonora. The Colorado River and the Gila River flow through this region, which, combined with the winter and summer rains that are unique to this subtropical desert, provide the vital water sources that support so much life. The Sonoran Desert also gets more rain than any other desert in the world, averaging 10 inches annually, mostly from July to September, from quick but powerful thunderstorms that can drop a large amount of rain in a very short period of time. The signature plant of the Sonoran Desert is the saguaro cactus. When you think of a stereotypical cactus, tall, round, and often sporting sidearms, that's a saguaro cactus. And the Sonoran Desert is their only natural habitat. 
Saguaro cacti can live to be 150 years old or older, but will not grow their first sidearms until they're at least 75. They can reach over 50 feet tall, and because, like other succulents, they store water in their stems, they are extremely heavy. A fully hydrated saguaro can weigh nearly 5,000 pounds. In Arizona, they're protected by law, and vandalizing or harming a saguaro is illegal. I came across this story while researching the saguaro. In 1982, a gentleman named David Grundman was shooting and poking at a saguaro cactus trying to make it fall. An arm of the cactus, weighing 500 pounds, fell onto him, crushing him and his car. The trunk of the cactus then fell on him as well. Mr. Grundman did not survive. But his demise was immortalized in song by the Austin Lounge Lizards, and they've given me permission to share that song with you here today. So please enjoy Saguaro by the Austin Lounge Lizards. The daylight was a-slippin' through the mountains to the east. He grabbed his guns and he mounted up, he was off to say the least. He drove along in silence, a chill was in the air The monsters had to be cut down or they'd soon be everywhere Seguaro, a menace to the west His name was David Grunman, a noxious little twerp Saw the giant plants as the Clanton gang and himself as Wyatt Earp. So he drove out to the desert, they wouldn't come to town. And Maricopa County, he vowed to shoot them down. Sequaro, a menace to the west. up to the first one not the largest of the lot with a lightning move a sidestep and killed him with one shot and when the smoke had cleared the cactus had lost that final round 200 years of nature's work lay splattered on the ground He crossed a small arroyo, though the sun was in his eyes. He was looking for the leader, he'd know him by his size. When all at once upon a ridge, the squinting gunman saw 27 feet of succulent challenging his draw. Sequaro! Slightly disadvantaged by the angle of the sun But after all, the cactus wasn't packing any gun His finger twitched, he made his move, he drew his guns to bark And echoed with the laughter as the bullets hit their mark Well, the giant cactus trembled and came that warning sound 
The mighty arm of justice came hurling toward the ground And the gunman staggered backwards, he whimpered and he cried The sequaro crushed him like a bug And David Grunman died Sequaro The moral of the story? Don't mess with a saguaro. Saguaro cacti provide critical habitat for other species in the desert. Gila woodpeckers and gilded flickers make holes for nesting, which are later used by other birds, like elf owls, purple martins, and house finches. Unfortunately, invasive plant species like buffelgrass and Sahara mustard pose significant threats to the Sonoran Desert ecosystem. Buffelgrass grows very densely, and it outcompetes saguaros for water. It's also extremely flammable, but it readily survives fires due to its deep root systems. Since the fire return interval, the normal frequency for naturally occurring fires in the Sonoran Desert ecosystem is over 250 years, saguaros didn't evolve with frequent fire, so they're not adapted to survive fire. Buffelgrass, on the other hand, thrives at a fire return interval of just two to three years. This has led to the reshaping of the Sonoran Desert ecosystem and threatens the survival of the saguaro. Now, one last desert dweller that I want to tell you about is the scorpion. There's over 2,500 scorpion species worldwide, and they live mainly, but not exclusively, in deserts. They're arachnids, so a cousin to spiders, but not spiders themselves. Like their cousins, the spiders, they have eight legs, and they're easily recognized by a pair of grasping pinchers and a narrow segmented tail, often carried in a characteristic forward curve over the back and always ending in a stinger. Scorpions primarily prey on insects and other invertebrates, using their pinchers to restrain and kill their prey. Their pinchers and venomous sting are also used for defense. All known species give birth to live young, and the female cares for the young as their exoskeletons harden, carrying them on her back. The exoskeleton of scorpions contains fluorescent chemicals that glow under ultraviolet light. I actually have a friend who recently moved to Arizona, and she's been posting pictures of scorpions that she's found at night using a black light. The vast majority of scorpion species don't pose a serious threat to humans, and healthy adults usually don't need medical treatment for a sting, kind of like being stung by a wasp or a bee. Worldwide, there's just 25 species, so less than 1%, that have venom capable of killing a healthy human. The most venomous scorpion in the United States is the Arizona bark scorpion, a resident of the Sonoran and Mojave deserts. The venom of the Arizona bark scorpion can cause severe pain, coupled with numbness, tingling, and vomiting, which usually lasts from 24 to 72 hours. Temporary dysfunction in the area stung is common. A hand or an arm might be immobilized or even experience convulsions. Due to the extreme pain induced, many victims describe sensations like an electric shock after being stung. Despite all that, it's not generally fatal. There's estimated to be thousands of stings from this scorpion every year, but there's only been two recorded deaths since 1968. 
And with that, Wild Wanderers, it's time to get a much-needed drink of water. All this desert talk has me dry. I want to thank the Austin Lounge Lizards for letting me share Saguaro with you. Check out all their great music at austinloungelizards.com. Thank you for listening. Be sure to leave a like and subscribe. You can also follow Dispatches from the Forest on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. If you have a question, a comment, or a suggestion for a future episode, feel free to send me an email at dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want to help support future episodes, please check out my Patreon page and consider becoming a patron. Tiers start at just $5 a month. You can find all the information at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.